Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, my name's Steve Coogan, and you're listening to Film Spotting. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Never let your guard down. You expect a battle to be fair. A battle will never be fair. Wonder Woman, one of the box office champs of the year, and it's appeared on a few year-end best lists, too. We'll see if it makes any of ours as we take a look back at the year in movies with our top 10 films of 2017 roundtable. The Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips and Tasha Robinson from TheVerge.com join us on the battlefield. So I think I saw Tasha practicing that move where she repels off a boulder and then shoots three arrows at the same time. Should I be worried? (laughs) Well, all I know is I'm underprepared then. I think you should be more worried, though, about criticizing Mark Hamill in The Last Jedi. Too much, Luke. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. We need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Happy holidays, everyone, and welcome to our special roundtable guest from the Chicago Tribune. Michael Phillips is back with us. Good to be here. Yeah. It's, Another year. It's nice that you returned our calls this year <laughs> after skipping out last year. I did. Well, I, we all have he our needed reasons. a break. We I all can have understand. our reasons. We have our reasons. But uh, I know I'm in the Christmas spirit, so let's go. Good. <laughs> and joining us for the first time, not on film spotting, but as part of this roundtable from TheVerge.com, and more importantly, to me, the next picture show podcast, Tasha Robinson. Tasha, yeah, thank you for joining us. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a tradition I had to keep up. I'm tagging into the still warm seat <laughs> vacated by Genevieve Koski, and before that, Scott Tobias. Yeah, is Scott going to forgive you for this? Uh, you know, he has so much that he can't forgive me for. from, Add it from to the list. Liking burrito lettuce to, at this point, liking por- uh, him liking porgs and me not. It's it's somewhere around 47 on the list of okay. things he'll never forgive oh, me wait, for. Wait, we might have a tiebreaker. Pro-porg, Adam's anti, I'm Michael. Anti-porg. Michael, pro or anti, you can't be in the middle. I am strangely mixed them. Oh, oh, come on. 
on. By the end of the show, you must decide. Or in general, Andy. But yeah, go ahead. Oh, okay. Boy. That decides it. Well, in, instead of doing by sides, we could create the Porg continuum right in this room. I like it. <laughs> we'll see if we have time for that. This is part one of our two-part countdown of the top 10 films of 2017. And we're doing something a little bit different this year. Instead of straight counting down 10 through 6, each one of us going, and then 5 through 1, we have separated the movies in the hopes of avoiding some redundancy. And the categories are the outliers, and then in part 2, we will get to the consensus picks, and some of them are more consensus than others. But I think it works. We'll talk about the couple exceptions to that rule as we go. Well, and shockingly, at the start, I just want to say not all of my picks are in the outliers group. So it is, it is I have, shocking. I have a handful in the consensus. <laughs> okay. To start, though, before we really get into those choices, we always like to take a look back at the box office for the year and just kind of assess what kind of year it was, not from purely a critical standpoint, what did all of us and what did our colleagues think, but what did audiences think of the year in movies? And we look at the box office top 10, Beauty and the Beast, a little bit surprising to me. I didn't see it, but just a little bit surprising that it's number one. Number two, Wonder Woman. Number three, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Number four, Spider-Man Homecoming. And in fifth place, It. At number six, we know it as Thor Ragnarok around yes, here. The so proper... get, on, get on board, please. The rest of you. Despicable Me at number seven. Logan was at eight. That was a little bit of a surprise to me. Number nine, The Fate of the Furious. And 10 was Justice League, but this weekend got edged out by, no surprise, The Last Jedi. So most of these movies, not that this is the end-all be-all, but Rotten Tomatoes scores, they're pretty high. For most of these, Justice League is only a 45, Despicable Me 3, pretty much everything else around 60 going up to the mid to high 70s. Does that does that mean it was a pretty good year as far as straight up populist entertainment goes? I know these are all franchise movies, which at this point isn't much of a surprise. I mean, it, I, I felt that it was a pretty good year for superhero movies as a whole, like a year where you get Logan and Wonder Woman and Spider-Man Homecoming. Uh, that alone, I think, made it a... a better than average year, just sort of the the summer box office style movie. Mm -hmm. And Get Out was a big surprise, though it was outside the top 10. Dunkirk, to me as well, this shows how much I don't really follow the box office in the industry, so to speak. I would have never predicted that it made as much money as it did. Is that just a matter of Christopher Nolan having the following that he has? Maybe it's the Harry Styles factor. I don't know. Did did Teen Girls <laughs> just come out on mass? Harry Styles factor. For, for I, I can't help but wonder if some of it was just the fact that he he pushed so hard for if you're going to see this movie properly, you have to see it in IMAX. You have to see it in 3D. You have mm -hmm. to see it in all of the more prestigious, expensive formats. And I do think people responded to that to some degree. That it it might have actually made more money per screen than a lot of films because it was playing in so many expensive prestige. I hadn't formats. Yeah. It's become an event in a way. I hadn't thought of that. And I I almost wonder if we're not if we're not sort of settling into a, a, a pattern of movie going in this more threatened age for the for movie going, where audiences will turn out for one, maybe two of that kind of blockbuster if it's sort of marketed and and honestly pushed that way by the people that made it, not just the studios, mm -hmm. and lives up to those expectations as well, which for me, at least, I think Dunkirk did. So that's yeah, really especially Yeah, especially, I mean, I, I liked it, didn't love it, but it, but but it, like Gravity, a couple, three years earlier, it, it's like, you know, yeah, if you're going to see it, see it. 
you know, see it big. And backing up your point, Tasha, glancing at the list at boxofficemojo.com, Dunkirk played on 3,720 screens. Everything ahead of it and most of the ones behind it were over 4,000. So Hmm. fewer screens still made a lot of money. We are going to get to a lot of special guest voicemails here with the show, one in a second. But I did want to say a little bit more about this outlier consensus idea as we jump in. We're going to hear Michael's number 10 pick first, his first outlier. And it's one that I think it's fair to say probably belongs more appropriately in the consensus category as it is one of the films of the year that's getting the most buzz and the most acclaim. But you're the only one who picked it, Michael. So technically, it's an outlier. At the same time, when we get to part two, you're going to hear a couple choices that are actually technically outliers. Only one of us picked them in our top 10, but they feel appropriate for the consensus pick. They feel appropriate for a discussion of the movies of 2017. So it's not perfect, but we're doing hey, our best. Labels, schmables. I, I'm categories, schmategories. He's, he's just trying to <laughs> explain why he's breaking a lot of rules. So no. that, that, was, that was a long preamble, normally, too. Normally, I would be, but I, I tried to follow it this year, Josh. So... Bear with us as we use these categories to divide up the work a little bit. Michael, we are starting with your number 10, and you're getting some help from one of our esteemed colleagues. Hello, film spotting. This is David Ehrlich from IndieWire, and uh, congratulations to everyone for surviving the brunt of 2017, at least. My favorite of films of this godforsaken year, uh, there would have to be a tie between Call Me By Your Name and, of course, the Weather Channel's video of the bus pulling in front of the controlled demolition of the Georgia Dome, uh, which was like Jacques Tati had climbed out of his grave for one last perfectly executed gag. I have watched it so many times that it has brought me an inordinate amount of pleasure in a grim time, and for that I'll be eternally grateful. Call Me By Your Name, also very good, uh, for if for no other reason, and there are many other reasons, beyond the fact that it is the best Hanukkah film ever made, and there isn't much competition in that regard. Uh, I'm sorry to Eight Crazy Nights and The Hebrew Hammer for finally being dethroned, but uh, I can't tell you how much joy it brought me to see a movie that I love so much and could be proud of to uh, celebrate the season and, and give us a little bit to balance against the uh, ever-increasing tide of Christmas movies, or the avalanche, I guess would be more appropriate. Anyway, uh, that was the year that was. Thanks for all the great listening, and uh, I'll talk to you guys soon. Bye-bye. So David, as usual providing a little bit of humor as he makes his choices. He is a senior critic at IndieWire. We will link to his top 25 films of 2017 video countdown in our show notes at filmspotting.net. If you haven't had a chance to see it yet, always one of the highlights of the cinephile year for me and many others. And yeah, we will link to that Tati-inspired <laughs> video of the bus blocking the Georgia Dome implosion. I don't know if you all saw that. I saw it pop up on my Twitter feed over Thanksgiving, immediately showed it to every single person around me. It was that funny. So both great choices from David and Michael. Call me by your name, not the bus implosion, is your number 10 choice. It is. It's my number 10. And it didn't make anybody else's top 10. Close. 11 Close. to 15. Okay. 
not not close for me. And we can talk about that. But I, I want to hear why. I know. I want to hear that. Well, and and it's it, yeah. I mean, I, I I put it at number ten because I do have some questions and a couple of problems that are not insignificant with it. But I also found just on pure atmosphere that the story of the seventeen-year-old. Uh, played by Timothy Chalamet, who's uh, spending a summer. This is 1983 in northern Italy near Crema. Um, His parents are academics, and uh, every year a graduate student comes through for six weeks to assist the the father, played by Michael Stuhlbarg, uh, with projects and research notes and things. So it's basically romance between the 17-year-old and this 24-year-old grad student, played by Army Hammer. this thing works like a Merchant Ivory film, and there's a connection there. Uh, it, uh, anything based on literature that had to do with falling in love with um, Italy uh, or else with falling in love with uh, you know, two people finding love in Italy. It's just, it's just a, a movie that is besotted with its setting. It's uh, the director, Luca Guadagnino, uh, who also revised the script by James Ivory of Merchant Ivory. Uh, I think... I think really is just a master of atmosphere. I loved I Am Love with Tilda Swinton, and I like this movie a lot for the same reasons. Now, I really do want to hear what Tasha's got to say sort of against it, because I wonder if it's got to do with the quality of the Army Hammer performance, which I think is limited and flawed. I was with you someone there, a little bit. Yeah, and... Um, and that's really that's really this, the where most of my issues are with it. If if I if I think it it's if I and I do think it is a very good film, not a great film. I didn't focus on the performances at all. For me, it was the the structure of the film, which spends so much time on the ephemera around this boy's life, and it felt like not enough time on the central relationship. Hmm. This is in, in theoretically, it's a movie, it's a love story, or at least a crush story, a coming of age story. But we spend so much time on just the the trivia of swimming and meals with the family. It. It lacked a vitality for me. It lacked a sense of urgency that comes with the best love stories. Hmm. The Merchant Ivory films that I love, like Room with a View, Remains of the Day, all have this kind of like reckless, crazed energy in at least one of the characters, something driving the film forward emotionally. Hmm. And for me, this film lacked any kind of, of emotional stakes. The characters were seemed so removed from life to me. They seemed so outside of any sort of like day-to-day pace. These are people whose idea of entertainment is sitting around quietly reciting German poetry to each other. And I just I had a very hard it's, time it's, connecting It's a rarefied to it. air for sure. And I do, I do think I use the phrase attractive abstraction to mm. describe uh, the, the character that, that Army Hammer plays. And it's also kind of what's, I think, innate in that casting. I think with better casting, a little younger, who, I mean, Army Hammer's 31. He's not 24. He's nobody's idea of 24. But... Um, I I I, th- I found though I, I found that approach Guadagnino's approach which is which is determinedly on the surface and it's a little bit fairy taleish no question about mm-hmm. it it's not really it's really not quite dealing with human beings on planet Earth it's more just this idealized very soft uh, very seductive and potent and then by the end I do I would I would say very emotionally charged you know when you get that last shot with Chalamet at the fire where you see what that affair actually meant to him. And it's it's done in a way that I think just seals the deal for the movie. So even with my problems, that's why it snuck in the top ten for me. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to disagree with you both in support of the film, though. I think it's Hammer's 
energy and vitality and the bigness of his performance that punctures that listlessness, Tasha, that's very purposeful and that's why it's so besot. That was a great word, Michael. Besotted. That is how you feel watching this movie, and part of that is born out of the lifestyle of this family. And then when Hammer comes in, just this golden boy who's going to grab life by the throat and throttle them out of that listlessness in ways that at least the Timothy Chalamet character is maybe not ready for. Then you get some real drama there. Mm-hmm. Is what I found. I really appreciate it. I think how much it did favor atmosphere over plot, though I agree with a lot of what you're saying, Tasha. And by the end, the stakes are very high, but it's really by the end, there's kind of a sneaky question throughout the whole film. It is more sneaky in terms of suggesting the will there, won't they aspect to the movie. Now, Tasha, you're up, your first outlier, which is your number 10 film of the year. Well, it's interesting. This actually plays directly into what we were just talking about. My number 10 is Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman, uh, which is a movie written and directed by Angela Robinson, who wrote and directed Debs and worked on The L Word. Um, She is like a black lesbian who's been working for many, many years uh, behind the scenes in in various places in the TV industry, kind of trying to forward different aspects of of diversity in love stories, in relationship stories, in female empowerment stories. And this is the story of William Moulton Marston, who is the credited creator and writer of Wonder Woman, but it's also about his relationship with two women, his wife and their lover, and how they kind of form a a stable triad during a period of the 40s where such things were completely unheard of. It's a story about the suburbs and how, how people judge and interpret other people's love lives. It's about secrecy. It's about passion. It's about kink. And it's about the creativity that that goes into comic books and about expressing yourself through your work. It's all of these things at once. But it's also just, I think, fabulously directed, fabulously acted. It's a very passionate film. All of the passion that I didn't see in Call Me By Your Name, I see in this movie, <laughs> which is very much about the idea that sex is a dangerous and, and difficult road to navigate, especially when you when you care about it in a way that the world has not has not slotted into the acceptable manners. But it's also secretly a lot of fun, and it's important to a relationship. And that's something I don't see in movies much. I want to study her. She'll break your heart, leave you eviscerated. Please, dear, the hyperbole. <laughs> it won't be her fault either. She'll just be surviving like an animal in the jungle. They're given fur and claws and teeth to survive. Well, then, do it. Don't be jealous. No, I don't experience sexual jealousy. Who am I to fight nature? I'm your wife, not your jailer. I think think people were not prepared to simultaneously appreciate and turn out for Wonder Woman while uh, in the same year where, where, the, where, this, where this somewhat surprising biography comes out, where if, if you don't know the story and this, the fact that it's all about a fully functioning menage a trois and, you know, it's, it's, you're losing your entire red state audience right there, you know. So it's, it, it's a very good film. I'm glad it's on the list. It didn't quite make, you know, my top 
my top 20 or 30, but it, but it's it was very solid. And I thought, for me, the way in was Rebecca Hall's performance as is uh, Marston's uh, wife, uh, another another professor uh, who's been you know screwed over on tenure and all the rest of it. And I just Rebecca Hall is one of my favorite actresses today, and she can really play a skeptical audience surrogate about like what well, what's going on here, and then and then bring you right into this whole new situation and make you believe every second of it. Hmm. I don't know why this is a movie that I had a complete misperception about. Following film Twitter for some reason, I just assumed this was a movie that was maligned by most critics. And then not only Tasha did I see it in your top 10. Michael, you gave it three stars. Rotten Tomatoes, 86 percent favorable. So clearly I just missed this boat completely. But no, and no, I'm curious. Promo- no promotion budget. Yeah, I it's yeah. I mean, it's one of those little indies that I think it's it's fairly easy to have missed it going under the radar. And I think a lot of people did. But people, if people, at least film critics that I've talked to who saw it, like enjoyed it on mm-hmm. a, a pretty deep level. It's a funny movie. It's it's lively. It's it's passionate. And it's very, very different, which I, I always value that pretty highly. Josh, your first outlier. My outlier is Your Name, which I've been describing as a Charlie Kaufman anime. That's how I experienced because <laughs> it's it's existentially provocative the way his films can be, but it's also very playful, I thought, and, and enjoyed it on that level. It's basically about a high school girl who lives in rural Japan and a similarly aged boy in Tokyo who inexplicably find themselves switching bodies. And there's a hint, a gorgeous opening hint that it's related to a meteor shower that we see. And, and right away, the the animation is just jaw-dropping and, and kind of captured me at the start. So all of that was cool enough, uh, the way your name plays with identity and space. But then about three quarters of the way in, I think there's this twist that also messes with our sense of time and recalibrates everything you've been watching. And that's where, you know, the, the Kaufman-esque crack in my brain happened, which often does in his films. <laughs> and, and you're just taken to this place where your mind is suddenly going to have to think about things in a completely new way. And, and the movie carried me through to the end on that wavelength. So as I mentioned, beyond all this, the animation is just mind-bogglingly gorgeous, um, that meteor shower, but also the everyday things. Um, there are these braided cords called uh, kumihimo, I believe, and that's kind of a recurring motif that are essentially like an everyday combination of thread, but the care and attention to the detail to something like that roots this movie in in reality as beautifully as it does all this other cosmic stuff going on. So this was a real delight for me this year, Your Name. It's such a luminous movie. I, it, there's just there's something about the, the kind of sun-dappled light of that film that I think really brings across the, the summer qualities of it, which when the story moves into this much more like autumnal gravity, I, I think becomes just a really interesting interesting transition. There's a very anime playfulness to some of the stuff that goes on, particularly when they first start swapping bodies and are trying to deal with each other's anatomy as a couple of teenage kids who yes. don't really know how to how to cope with that. They can't cope with other people's bodies, let, a, let alone having you know the accoutrements of the other gender on their own bodies. But then it goes from like that level of slapstick into such a serious and deep place. It's a lovely film. Yeah, you reference Charlie Kaufman, I prefer to think of it as Anime the Lake House, which, <laughs> which means it should be. I mean, that's okay. what it is. Go and, on. And it should be my favorite movie of all time <laughs> by that count, but it's not. I'm with you guys completely on it having profound moments of beauty. Luminous is really the perfect word. 
maybe I just couldn't get in sync with the anime spirit of it. Those musical interludes and some of the slapstick I found, I found more I distracting. I couldn't go for the rad wimps. Yeah. I just, sorry. I, I love that. You know that Josh, great but music. <laughs> the, the way that relationship was set up too seemed to me that line between it being Kaufman esque, a little weird and abstract versus just a little bit clunky. I think I came down a little bit more on the clunky side. I just never could fully embrace it. But in fairness, it was the last full movie I crammed in in preparation for this top 10 list. So I just was probably not in the best headspace for something this abstract, something this nonlinear. So yeah, like, it's, it's pretty challenging. And to be fair, I'm no expert. I think it's just rad wimps. I think they just go by rad wimps. <laughs> well, you know, people were writing in yeah. instantly. So I had I'm to get on that. Corrected that. That's your number nine film, Your Name. And we are jumping around a little bit with the order of our picks. As we said, if you want to see our complete picks over these two-part shows, you can go to filmspotting.net slash lists and actually see where we are ranking all of these films and see all of the titles. My first outlier, my number 10 is Personal Shopper from Olivier Asayas. And as you guys know, Michael, certainly from your years here, Josh, from doing this show now a few years, often a theme emerges with my picks and emerges is the right word because I don't sit down trying to fit the picks into a theme. There's no real connective tissue in mind, no direction, but something invariably pops up. And my top five has its own little sub-theme we'll get to in part two. But Sam and I were discussing our individual lists, looking at our top tens, how they were shaking out. And we both noticed that the majority of our favorite films this year, it's actually eight of ten for me, are films that feature, among other adjectives you could apply, curious, compassionate women. And it's a given that strong or empowered women is also part of that. But curiosity certainly drives the protagonist of my number 10 film, Kristen Stewart as Maureen in Aseas's film. She's a seeker. She's a seeker of clothes for a celebrity in Paris. That's her job. She is a shopper. She's a seeker of spirits. One in particular, her dead twin brother. She's a medium. She seems to have the ability to communicate with the spirit world. And she's ultimately a seeker of identity. She's trying to figure out who she is and her place in the world, but also the identity of the person who is sending her these mysterious text messages. She assumes at first that it's her brother. And I do think that Aseas has so so carefully and neatly established the mood and the mechanics of the story. And Stuart is so talented an actress that even just watching that extended sequence on the train, which is all just a bunch of text messages being shared, is really thrilling. And Mike D'Angelo actually listed it as one of his favorite scenes of the year in the AV Club. It's a haunting film about a haunted character at its core, a movie like A Ghost Story, which is another movie that may come up here at some point. It's about grief and fear and how we try to move on from those paralyzing states or don't. And Michael, you had a great summation line in your review of this film. It's a genre hopper of unusual gravity. I certainly think that's the case. And there's a scene right in the middle of this film where Maureen is talking to, I think it's the boyfriend of the celebrity she works for, and they're discussing the spirit world, what it entails, how she tries to communicate with her brother. It concludes with a, a great line, I think, is the essence of her curiosity and her compassion. It's the same curiosity and compassion that Aseas exhibits through this film and other great ones, Clouds of Sils Maria recently, Something in the Air, Summer Hours. She says, I don't even know if I believe in all that, the soul continuing to exist after death, but Lewis did, and I have to give his spirit, whatever you want to call it, a chance to prove him right. So Maureen isn't totally sure she believes. We're not sure we believe what Stuart or Asayas are selling here in this movie. But I think the whole endeavor is so rooted in empathy that we give them a chance to prove they're right. So we made this oath. 
Whoever died first would send the other a sign. A sign? From, from the afterlife? You could call it that. You could call it a million things. But how do you know if it's a sign? I'm a medium. He was, he was a medium. I'll just know it. I like that film a lot. I don't think a movie has to know what it's selling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Frankly, it's almost better if it doesn't know, because especially if it tries to narrow it down to one thing. I mean, I just, I just don't trust any writer, director, who's who's honestly saying my film is about blunk or blunk gets or, didactic. Know. Yeah, or, or yeah. just a reductive down to one, down to one meaning. And I, I, the only thing I remember having, and I haven't seen that film for many months now. But, yeah, me neither. And I love that scene with the text. I mean, I'm, with all the flurry of texting scenes where text appears on screen in a yeah. prominent way, you know, just to get these conversations visualized, right? I've never seen it done better than that. And um, my only issue is that last couple of minutes where you take the, you have to take a leap yeah. that you either take or you don't. And I, I, I wonder if Asias himself is truly satisfied with maybe. it. Maybe. Yeah. I, 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 took, uh, maybe not. I took the leap with it. And Stephen Cohn, the Chicago filmmaker, had a very good film this year, Princess Sid. Yes. He was on our show to talk about this, wrote an essay about it. And I don't remember if he said this on the show or just in the essay, but he made a great point about how the ellipses – are used in that iPhone. You know, when someone starts texting you back and it's in a movie that's about the spirit world and the unknown and every time those little dots pop up, it's like this other spirit out there, that anticipation of of what's coming from the other side. It it really is wonderfully used in that sequence. Michael, we move on to your next outlier, which is your number seven film of the year. It's the number one film of the year for one of our special guests. Hey guys, this is Cameron Austin Collins from The Ringer. I'm calling to say that my number one movie of the year is Good Time by Josh and Benny Safdie. For so many reasons, A, the most exhilarating time I had in the theater this year um, by some distance. Uh, B, I just think it's an incredibly beautifully made movie. I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like Robert Pattinson's performance. Um, or Benny Safdie's performance. And also, just, I'm just a sucker for a gritty New York crime movie. Um, I don't think the movie's totally nostalgic, but I do think that it does kind of recall uh, a great history of New York crime movies that are just gritty, ground-level, bouncing off the walls, etc. So that's my number one. Have a good holiday. Yeah, I mean that's that's a great description of of all its qualities. I think this Safdie film is 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 really one of the most propulsive movies of the year, uh, whether you like it or not. And uh, for people who haven't seen it yet, Pattinson plays Connie Nikas, this hustler from Queens, New York, who's uh, in, kind of recruiting his developmentally challenged brother Nick, played by Benny Safdie, the co-director, uh, with this this half-baked bank robbery scheme, which you know, goes south instantly. And then the whole rest of the movie is this series of desperate improvisations that the Pattinson character is engineering just, just to kind of stay one step ahead of the cops, keep his brother safe. Uh, you know, it's, it's, one, it's one kind of scarifying sequence after another. And it does feel like a 70s New York crime movie a little bit like – if Sidney Lumet had a, had no commercial ambitions at all, let's say. Um, and I guess there was an interesting racial debate about the racial politics of this film. And I, I'm still not quite sure what I think of it. I need to see it again to really kind of 
get my get my head clear on that. They, a lot of people thought that, including Tony Scott, the New York Times thought that there was a there was a pronounced um, sort of racial insensitivity in a lot of the white on black um, seduction and crime as 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 depicted in this picture. Um, and I I don't quite know if I if I really buy that, but but at the same time. I might have just simply been swept up so much in kind of the moment-to-moment survival tactics of, of the characters that, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm eager to see it a second time. Haven't done it yet, but I really think the softies are, are uh, their own filmmakers. I mean, they really – they have great influences, but they've absorbed them all easily, naturally. And, uh, yeah, I, I like the movie a lot. Yeah, Cameron's word, I think, exhilarating your word, propulsive, both absolutely apply to the movie. I'm also a big fan of those two central performances. And if you missed it, I had a good conversation with Josh and Benny back in August – on Film Spotting. You can find it on our interviews page at filmspotting.net. They talk about working with Pattinson and their visual approach, the, the tight close-ups, the point of view, the way it really puts us into that hyper-focused, desperate headspace of Connie. And they recently, I don't know if you guys saw this news, it was recently announced that the Safdie brothers are going to remake, in some capacity, 48 Hours. Saw that. <laughs> and... Guess which movie they said they had just revisited recently and loved during our Film Spotting 5 segment on the show, 48 Hours. So, breaking news, Film Spotting Interviews is the place to go. Yes. <laughs> you could have just read between the lines that they were going to remake 48 Hours. Good time. A great pick. And that brings us to Tasha's next outlier. It's your number eight film. My number eight was The Breadwinner, which is an animated film made in Ireland by uh, the director Nora Twomey, who is the co-director of The Secret of Kells, uh, which came out a few years back and was it's, it's a film that turned up on the Oscar Best Animated Feature list and shocked the world because nobody had heard of it. It hadn't come out yet. It was from a tiny Irish studio. But the Oscars showcased a clip from it, and it turned the world's attention to the output of this uh, the studio, Cartoon Saloon. They've put out a couple of films at this point, uh, Secret of Kells, which she co-directed, uh, Song of the Sea, which her co-director Tom Moore directed, and now The Breadwinner. All of these films are are just visually exceptional. They're designed in a very idiosyncratic way that's, that's just kind of built on, on dark, deep colors and layers. Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea are both fa- fairy tales. They're, they're fables. They're uh, touched upon a little bit in history, um, but they're primarily invented stories. The Breadwinner is about a young girl in Afghanistan under Taliban rule and specifically about the oppression that she and other girls her age and other women in society face under Taliban law. It's about bullying and how fundamentalist religion can be used to hurt people. It's about how the individual use of power uh, can corrupt people. But it's also just about individual power. She ends up having to disguise herself as a boy to support her family when her father is taken to prison. And it becomes kind of an empowerment narrative. At the same time, there's a fable woven through it that she's telling her younger brother to try to make sense of her world. So it still has that fairy tale quality to it. It still has some of those those elaborate, dark, uh, interesting visuals. But it's a much it's a very different film for the studio. You know, it's based very heavily in recent history, in actual oppression that goes on in the world, and in a very specific uh, setting and regime. And it's just, it's exceptionally emotional. It's hmm. very hard to watch. Yeah, I watched 
it this weekend and it managed to squeak onto my list. I have it at number seven. I was not prepared for the wallop at the end of this. It, it almost, you know, describing the plot can make it seem almost like lesson-y a little bit, like we're, we're going to learn about another part of the world. And it's so much more uh, artistically rendered and intuitive and yet genuinely emotional than than your first impression might be. You're describing the animation, Tasha, and it, and I think there's some of it that does harken back to that geometric patterning they've done in their other films, uh, and that's beautiful to see again here because you're right, it, you won't find it anywhere else. But then there is this other subplot where Parvana, the girl, tells this story to her little brother. And this, we get an entirely different animation style when we see this story being told. And that's a fable. It's more like a fairy tale, right? About a boy who's fighting an elephant beast. It's almost this paper cut style of animation that's very, there's an extra dimension to it. And it has just this handcrafted glow to it that is gorgeous. Um, And this all comes together in the climax where these scenes of realism, war breaks out. And suddenly we're alternating between this fairy tale that's being told and actual scenes of the landscape around Kabul. And as we go back and forth, the juxtaposition is is really jarring and beautiful. And where it lands is somewhere close to, Adam, you won't want to see this because it's close to Grave of the Fireflies. Yeah, I was mm-hmm. really excited to watch this I'm movie not, I'm not before you guys started talking. It goes all the way there, but it's in that vein. And man, it, and I think it ends perfectly, though. Mm-hmm. I don't think it, it mm-hmm. ends manipulatively or um, unrealistically for mm-hmm. this situation. Um, yeah, it's a stunner. Well, I'm going to need to have a few more weeks to emotionally prepare myself, I think. I think like so many films that have embedded fairy tales, it's a story about the stories we tell ourselves and how we use stories to navigate through life. But at the same time, it's, it is itself a form of fairy tale. And I think the place that it gets to ultimately kind of speaks to that. Well, I obviously have not seen this movie yet, and I haven't seen Secret of Kells, but I can recommend Song of the Sea. So... There is one I have actually One of my all-time favorites at this point. Josh, keep it going with your next outlier. All right, another outlier, one that I have at number eight on my list is Blade Runner 2049. And having sat with this for a while now, put me in the camp where it's a little bit better, I think, than the original cult favorite, Blade Runner, which I like quite a bit. And we did that Sacred Cow review, Michael. Are you trying to hack (laughs) off an entire angry generation of fans I believe you like Blade Runner even less than us. Yeah. So so I don't know if you can accuse me of that. The original or the new one? uh, Yeah, I mean, I, I like them both. Okay. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> such such ghost, ghostly I, suspense in that dot, for the dot, rest dot. Of, for the rest of the show, I'm just going to give my titles and say dot, dot, dot. <laughs> yes. Well, we'll be home a lot quicker that way. Yep. So Blade Runner 2049, I really think, you know, first you have director Denis Villeneuve's doom-laden visuals that I think match and move forward what Ridley Scott established. It's a wonderful way of honoring them and also bringing us to new places. Of course, Roger Deakins, cinematographer, has a lot to do with that. Um, I think it also, you know, the consideration of artificial intelligence here, uh, it's deeper and more poignant than it was in the first Blade Runner. Uh, I I think that movie was more interested in human mortality, actually, and that's probably why. So it's not a fault of the earlier film, but I like where this one pushes that, especially in the character of Joy, the hologram played by Anna de Armas. I I think 
she and the way she makes us ask what does it mean to to be an individual being and to have yearnings and desires. Um, she she should go down in the AI Hall of Fame. And that's character. the best scene where where you where you, I agree the, the scene between Gosling and that character in the you know, rain. Yeah, and, and she well, notices the rain. Where you too, get you and, get I think you get the proper uh, and pretty unsettling chill of like is this what it's going to come to? Is, yeah, is this what our relationships are going to come to? Yeah, I think yeah. I think it's a it's a troubling movie on that hand. And then you get Harrison Ford who you know he redeems his inert 1982 performance here because <laughs> he's full of conviction and he's full of real feeling and it it makes this movie work so i was really looking forward to this one um surprised how good it turned out because these things don't always work as well and then it has stuck with me and ended up at number eight on my list one more for the had your job once I was good at it. I know. What do you want? I want to ask you some questions. So, Tasha, you very generously gave this movie four stars on Letterboxd, but had a lot of reservations about the film. And I'm, I'm with you. You said that it's are you lavishly... Her, are you calling her a liar? Or? <laughs> you said that it's lavishly and lovingly made, which it certainly is, but you couldn't emotionally engage with it. Is that still your reaction to the film? I still can't emotionally engage with it because there are, there are too many things going on in this movie that are calling for emotional engagement in very different ways. There, there are so many different characters and, and threads, and they're all pulling in different directions from each other. For me, this was kind of conceptually a very ambitious, very muddled film, which does not get in the way of the fact that it is visually gorgeous mm-hmm. and that many of those characters and themes are really interesting and the little fragments we get of them are really compelling. It felt like somebody edited together a, a 10-hour uh, HBO TV series, uh, a little muddily to me, because mm. this could have been a Westworld-length epic show, like un- uncovering and unfolding all of these ideas. We did a, a paired set of episodes on The Next Picture Show about this and the original Blade Runner, and we talked a lot about a lot of these themes. It has by far been our most popular episode, both for downloads and for responses. And a lot of those responses have been very thought through explanations of, here's what I think the themes are getting at. Here's what I think Villeneuve is trying to communicate. And some of those responses were so thought through, they actually made me like the movie better in retrospect. Mm, nice. but, but my experience in the theater was very yeah. much there's too much going on here and it's not engaging with any of these ideas on mm. the level I'd like it to. Well, my next outlier is my number nine film of the year. And who says that I can't have my own fairy tale pick? I don't like fantasy. I get that knock all the time, Josh, but I'm going with Todd Haynes' adaptation of the 2011 Brian Selznick novel. It's called Wonderstruck. All right, and all in right. some ways, Seems like it's a nice pairing with your name. We have a boy and a girl sort of spanning of similar age, spanning different dimensions almost. They're certainly spanning different eras. Very much so. One is Ben, one is Rose, and there is going to be a connection of a sort made between them, just like there is in your name. And Rose, if you've seen this film, you know she is one of the curious compassionate young women who is at the core of this film, but Julianne Moore, who factors in later and a little bit at the beginning, but especially later in the film, is another one of those curious, compassionate women. I think you can make a case for Michelle Williams, too, though we really only see her in a few flashbacks as the boy Ben's mom. The silent film portion of this movie, especially with that Carter Burwell score, is just so gorgeous. Edward Latchman's cinematography is great, and it just 
contrasts so nicely with the 70s section. Everything about the production design of this film is, well, it is wondrous, but sometimes it's one performance that can carry an entire movie and not only a performance, a face. And that face here is Millicent Simmons, who is that young girl, Rose, leaving her home in Hoboken, New Jersey, getting away from her sort of evil father and seeking her identity and some answers in the big city of New York. She seems perfectly situated, her performance in that space between reality and fantasy that the movie inhabits. She's a girl of her time and also seems to me a girl completely out of time. She's grounded. She she understands her circumstances, but she's also someone who is a dreamer. And her smile, which we don't get all that much, it was earned every time. And it just melted me whenever I saw that smile on screen. Stephanie Zaharik in her time review said Simmons is deaf and to watch her face to see how as Rose, she virtually breathes in the world around her as if sounds and visuals were color values you could absorb into your very being is to step over a border you perhaps didn't know existed, mm, yeah, which puts it much more eloquently than I'm trying to do. And emotional engagement talk about that in relation to Blade Runner 2049 when those two storylines do converge and the way they converge not in the in the way that maybe you think they do i think it's one of those films that a lot of audience members me included think we have it all figured out and the movie pulls the rug out just a little bit it it made it really dusty well, in the theater so, watching this movie so, selznick's uh, the the author daniel selznick's you know storytelling is is very uh, uh, you know, kind of determinedly complex, you know, and these are storylines. I'm thinking of the Hugo Cabret uh, book that he wrote that was adapted by Scorsese into simply Hugo. And that it's it's more work than a lot of audiences want to do. And uh, I never actually ever thought about Blade Runner 2049 in conjunction in relation to Wonderstruck. But there's something about uh, a methodical approach to storytelling that is is something is the last frontier for an American audience, <laughs> and I, 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 if there's anything that sort of points the direction to why those two films, different as they are, different budgets mm-hmm. by miles, uh, both were financial disappointments. It's that I think it is that, and if you got the right director, it means the directors are actually up to something more interesting than just hammering the narrative. Yeah, and I think that that was one of the brave aspects of Blade Runner twenty forty nine for me is that it committed to the originals sense of pacing and deliberateness. And as far as Wonderstruck goes, um, you know, this is maybe being written off as Todd Haynes' children's film, right? And I think that's completely incorrect because this is as experimental as anything he's done. When you talk about those complications that are in the original novel, Michael, that's probably what attracted him because this was a real challenge to piece this thing together, to use different film stock and timelines and and its subject matter and narrative may be the stuff of kids, quote unquote. But the way this thing is constructed is is challenging. And and kids, if they are given the trust to see something like that, usually do respond to it well. All right, listeners will get a chance to have their say about the best of the year next when we have the results of the film spotting poll. Adam, you're going to get a little support for Personal Shopper. Nice. Then we'll get back to more of our roundtable picks. As we head into the break, we get a best film music of 2017 pick from friend of the show, regular contributor here this time of year, Sam Smith. He's a Nashville-based musician and graphic designer. He hosts the movie music show OST, which you can find at mixcloud.com slash OSTFM. We'll link to that in our show notes over at our website, filmspotting.net. Among his favorites this year and mine was Daniel Hart's score for David Lowry's A Ghost Story. We'll hear a bit of the track 
little notes. First, though, a couple best of 2017 voicemails from critics Vikram Murthy and Alyssa Wilkinson. The Chicago-based Murthy contributes to the AV Club, Vulture, and IndieWire, among other outlets. Wilkinson writes at Vox.com. My favorite film of the year was Lady Bird, but in my top three was The Work, which is a documentary that looks at a group therapy session at Folsom Prison where um, incarcerated men and men from the outside of the prison are able to join together in a four-day really intense group therapy session. It blew me away with how much it revealed about um, the ways that our past and our presence affect our future, and it also um, is just about impossible to stop thinking about. Hey, Film Spotting, this is Vikram Murthy. My favorite film of 2017 is Bertrand Bonello's Nocturama, a hypnotic thriller about young French terrorists who wage an attack on Paris before hiding out in a deserted shopping mall. An aesthetic marvel, Nocturama explores adolescent alienation and radical ideology through an opaque lens. Bonello seduces the audience with service pleasures, only to repel them with their disturbing implications, creating a space that embraces internal contradictions. Most importantly, he trusts viewers to reach their own conclusions about the film without the help of obvious moral signposts. Thanks so much, and happy holidays. This is Genevieve from the Next Picture Show podcast calling in with my number one film of 2017, which is, as was foretold by Scott Tobias the moment he saw it, Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird. Given how closely my personal teenage experience echoes that of the title character, that's perhaps not totally surprising, but I don't want that to undermine what Gerwig has achieved with this film. I'm particularly enamored of her screenplay, which has such sharp, specific characterization that results again and again in these perfect interpersonal interactions that reveal so much more depth beyond what's on the surface. Of course, the performances are what sell that script, along with some of Gerwig's directorial choices, which I think are equally sharp and smart. Uh, and Lady Bird is stacked with wonderful performances. Saoirse Ronan, of course, carries the film as Lady Bird, but I am especially enamored of Laurie Metcalf, an actress I've always loved, who with this film gets a role that plays so perfectly to her strengths. Sharp, occasionally stinging, maybe even a little abrasive, but with a wounded core that plays out across her face, even when she's at her most exasperated. For me, it's a performance that encapsulates the tricky but lovely emotional balancing act the film pulls off from the first frame to the last. Our thanks to Genevieve Kosky from The Next Picture Show with her choice, Lady Bird, a movie that will definitely get some more attention from us on next week's show when we get to our consensus picks for the best films of the year. Lori Metcalf, she singled out there for her performance, rightfully so. The Chicago Film Critics Association, that's one they got right, I believe, Lori Metcalf. <laughs> and, and not that they didn't get some others they right. They got a few right. We did. We did okay with our voting, but definitely Lori Metcalf as Best Supporting Actress was one I was happy to see. Lady Bird is also one of the options we gave listeners when we asked them to name the best film of the year. More on those poll results in just a bit. 
on last week's episode, in addition to our reviews of The Last Jedi and Call Me By Your Name, it featured a memorable edition of Massacre Theater. One, I'm not going to lie, after the show, I pretty much asked Sam just to cut. I wasn't sure we needed that Massacre Theater in everyone's lives, Josh. You weren't confident in your performance? Well, I certainly was not confident in my performance, but I guess I'm glad the world got to hear the choice you made, the very bold, phlegmy choice you made. Can you can you actually give everyone a little taste of your performance? It's going to cost you extra. This, this is Fair not enough. a Massacre Theater week, so all right, let's see what I can do. I saved us. It was me. We survived because of me. I mean, come on, guys. And, I mean, and, you have no he, idea what he's doing, but it's pretty good. It's like Tasha Peter Lorre. Tasha I, knows. I know what he's doing. I'm, I'm pocketing my wedding ring right now, <laughs> just in case. Oh, well, there's uh, a hint. Wow. It's, uh, it's Peter Lorre in a blender. <laughs> That's the best description I've ever heard. That? <laughs> Michael nails my process. Yes, he did. Just a reminder that you have until January 8th to submit an answer for your chance to win your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. Just email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. If you can't figure out what Josh was doing and name that film, you want to get a t-shirt the old-fashioned way, you want to buy one, you can do that. You can do that at filmspotting.net. Just click on shop. That's where you'll also find a link to buy Josh's book, Movies Are Prayers. Endorsed by Michael Phillips, yes. actually. A very generous endorsement and, and probably a more enjoyable read than the book itself. So <laughs> buy it just for that. I should mention that I haven't read it. <laughs> I assume so. <laughs> also, at our website, if you click on events, you can see all of our options for free movie passes. These are for Chicago area screenings, sometimes for a run of engagement, but usually for advanced screening. So you can see them for free and before all of your friends. Recently, we've had passes for Aaron Sorkin's Molly's Game with Jessica Chastain, Margot Robbie, and I, Tanya, and Alexander Payne's Downsizing, among many others. Again, filmspotting.net slash events if you are so inclined. Let's get to those poll results now. Let's get some listener feedback here as we're sharing our favorite film Films of the year. We only gave you a few options, but we said simply name the best film of 2017. Your choices were Dunkirk, Get Out, Lady Bird, or You're Taking the Field. Other. Josh, how did it come out? Get Out was in last place with 18%, but it was close there. Lady Bird came in next with 19% of the vote. Dunkirk got 24% of the vote, but this was won by other with 39%. Yeah, and some of those other answers were The Florida Project, which was the most popular other, Blade Runner 2049, Call Me By Your Name, A Ghost Story, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, The Big Sick, Mother, and Columbus. You just might hear about a few more of those titles as we get through this episode and part two. I think overall, though, if you look at those numbers, pretty evenly matched those choices. I think we did a decent job kind of highlighting three of the bigger, more popular films of the year, at least among cinephiles. One of those cinephiles is Aaron Teachman in Washington, D.C., who says 2017 has been quite a year, an exhausting year, a year of resistance. The films that have truly resonated with me this past year have cut culture open so finely and cleanly that the wound felt like revelation. Get Out would be the best film of the year for me if it had just managed to be insightful and incisive about race in America, but it also leverages genre tropes from horror and comedy so cunningly that it never fails to entertain and shock even as it teaches. Get Out is the most 2017 and the best of 2017. Oh, that's a great description. Well said. Great description. Sam Vargan in Martinez, California says, in a fairly abysmal year for big budget films with the studios pumping out CGI-ridden mediocrity with assembly line efficiency, Dunkirk reinvigorated my love of 
of big movies. Dunkirk basks in its sheer size, from the massive army stranded on the beach to the vast expanses of the ocean and sky to the 65-millimeter negative and the huge IMAX screen and aspect ratio. I've not seen a studio film so unapologetically sure of itself in a long time. It felt as much about filmmaking itself as it did about the rescue at Dunkirk, and it reminded me why I love going to the movies. Hmm. Well, he's absolutely right about the the vast expanses of the ocean and sky, but Richard from Chicago seems to disagree. He writes, Dunkirk is an amusement park ride at a history museum. Get Out is Ira Levin meets Alfred Hitchcock. And Lady Bird is a very special episode of Degrassi High. Ouch. Wow. I know, brutal. Why is Darren Aronofsky's mother so overlooked or dismissed? It's dangerous and thrilling and by far the best film of the year. Maybe he'll get a little support from someone on this panel later in the show. (laughs) For now, though, we'll hear from Kathleen. She's in Duluth, Minnesota. I'm going with what looks to be the most popular other option and putting my vote behind the Florida Project. Sean Baker's movie-making style is, dare I say it, revolutionary. Whether he's walking through L.A. with an iPhone or pulling vibrant, ponderous shots of Orlando motels, Baker manages to make art that is exquisite, yet ordinary and relatable. Brooklyn Prince blew my mind and Willem Dafoe kindly pieced it back together for me. This movie amazed me and changed me. Even though the other films on this poll are great, I couldn't have gone any other way. Darren says the Florida Project is my easiest best of the year pick in years. And there's a good chance I would not have seen the Florida Project in theaters if I hadn't seen Tangerine. And there's a very good chance I wouldn't have seen Tangerine if I wasn't a film spotting fan. These year-end best of lists and especially your golden brick discussions are tremendously effective. And I'm tremendously grateful. Thank you so much, Darren, for that. Now, five days later... Darren comes back. He's doing a little cramming, just like us. He's trying to see everything he can before the end of the year. And he says he has to change his vote. He's going from other to other. I honestly can't believe I'm second-guessing the Florida Project, but Call Me By Your Name hit me hard. Timothy Chalamet is truly remarkable in a film full of standout performances both in front of and behind the camera. Okay, a switch vote there. I guess we'll allow it. Matthew from Brooklyn says, Personal Shopper has remained my film of the year since I saw it back in March. No other film this year is as brave with its central metaphors connecting ghosts to both grief and our own ethereal online presences. On top of that, Kristen Stewart carries that film with an all-in performance. It's one of the most indescribably bizarre films I've ever seen, but it all works and I haven't been able to get it out of my head ever since. Well, Eddie from Chicago continues the trend of people from Chicago dissing the previous pick in praising their personal pick. That's how we roll here. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm going to take take exception with that. I I don't think it is how we roll here. The most unforgettable experience I had at the movies this year came courtesy of David Lowry's A Ghost Story, a parable of memory, loss, and grief. It did everything to my insides that I was hoping for— when I went to see Personal Shopper, which I found phony and contrived, despite huh. a home run performance by Kay Stewart, I groaned at the end of Personal Shopper. The end of a ghost story took my breath away. You were doing so well, Eddie. It's okay to like <laughs> so both. Well. We do have another vote here, though, for a ghost story. It comes from Sam in Lafayette, Indiana. Please, please, please don't forget about a ghost story. I never would have watched it if it hadn't been championed on this show and your sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. I have since seen it several times and have recommended to everyone I know. Nothing else has struck a chord so deeply with me this year. And while I understand why y'all picked Dunkirk, Lady Bird, and Get Out for this poll, a ghost story deserves a special mention for how it has challenged my view of grief, loss, and time. It was truly a spiritual experience. Hoping to see it on some top ten lists. You just might have to wait for part two, Sam. Zach Kircher from Mesa, Arizona writes in, The most satisfying movie of the year for me was Makoto Shinkai's anime masterpiece, 
your name. Oh, there you go. It is not only a beautifully realized work of art with breathtaking cell animation, but an experience that just kept building and building right until it closed itself out with, at least in my opinion, one of the most emotionally satisfying film endings in history. No other film this year has captured my heart and soul quite like this one, and I'm grateful that Shinkai decided to share this story with the world. Cody Paulson from Phoenix, Arizona says, Koganada's Columbus is by far my favorite movie of the year and, in my opinion, also the best of the year. I rarely feel such a profound connection to the film's characters as I did with this film. I would give anything to spend more time with both Jin and Casey in this beautiful town full of masterful architecture. I'm still spellbound by Columbus after seeing it two and a half months ago, and I honestly hope that I never get over that feeling. And to wrap up, Kenny Meyer has a letter after my own heart here. If I'm going for most important and mind-blowing, get out. If I'm talking about the biggest surprise of the year and what gives me the most hope for the future of cinema, Lady Bird. If we're talking cinematography and heartbreakingly true-life performances, The Florida Project. If I'm going for what made me laugh and cry the most and recommend the most, The Big Sick. But, and I'm all alone in the universe on this, if you're asking me what the most exciting, visceral, gut-wrenching, thrilling, scarf popcorn while exclaiming holy shit out loud inducing kick-ass time at the movies I had this year, <laughs> twice, it's Logan. Yeah, you're right. all alone. He's all alone. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> Unless, Tasha, you support him. I, I mean, I support both uh, Logan as, as a really good time and just the, uh, the range of these picks. I, I think that this is a really good panoply of, of choices here. I agree. Kenny Meyer, once a star of a film spotting rap party live here in Chicago. Thank you, Kenny. Thank you to everyone who sent such insightful and eloquent feedback. Next year, you can just go ahead and make my picks for me. I will happily, <laughs> I'll happily trade my spot. Let's go ahead and get back into our countdown of our favorite films of the year with a voicemail from our our longtime friend, Dana Stevens, from the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Hi, Adam and Josh and Michael Phillips, if you're around, and all film spotting listeners. This is Dana Stevens. I'm the film critic at Slate and a longtime friend of this podcast. And I'm calling in because you asked me about my favorite movies of the year. So thanks for asking. I'm honored and I'm torn. So I'm going to cheat this year because you guys told me it was okay and, uh, and make it a tie because I suspect that one of my two candidates is already going to be named by many listeners, if not by the film spotters themselves. And the other is a movie that I think needs some attention brought to it and that was tragically just not nominated for an Oscar or may not made eligible for an Oscar, and therefore a lot of people might not see it. Okay, that was a long prequel. So my two movies are Phantom Thread, Paul Thomas Anderson's psychological thriller about couture. I don't know how you would sum it up, but it is a mysterious marvel and uh, just really, I think, maybe the most perfectly realized work of art of any movie this year, uh, which is, of course, also about making perfect works of art. And my co-number one, not the runner-up, but a movie equally deserving of love, praise, and attention is BPM, Beats Per Minute, the, uh, the French film directed by Robin Campillo, uh, which, how do we summarize what that is? Is just a kind of sweeping epic story of the ACT UP movement in Paris in the early 90s that brings in a whole lot of great performances and, uh, and really daring kind of cinematic storytelling and is really notable in particular for its main performance from a man whose name I won't try to pronounce, but who absolutely kills the role of an HIV-positive activist in that movement. Uh, I hope this wasn't too long. That's my description of my two favorite movies of the year. There's much more to say about the great movies of 2017, and uh, I will love listening to you guys on them. Okay, bye. 
Thank you so much, Dana, for those picks. And I'm with her on BPM being one of the better films of the year, featuring really two standout performances. She wasn't going to attempt the names. One of them, I will. Arnaud Valoy as Nathan. And this is the really hard one here. He plays Sean. I'm just going with how it's spelled in front of me. Nahul Perez Biscayar. That's good. You kind of fake the French uh, dialect at the end there. That's right. I'm not going to hit the T hard there. I'm going to go French. (laughs) He is wonderful. Two of my favorite performances of the year, actually, after catching up with BPM just over the weekend. Let's get back to our list of outliers, the movies that only one of us picked for our top 10. And Michael, your number five is up. My number five is Rat Film. Rat Film. Who who else saw Rat Film? I saw it. Oh, good, good. Uh, This is uh, uh, Theo Anthony's 83-minute documentary about, among other things, the history of Baltimore's urban planning, housing segregation, and marginalized, rat-infested African-American communities within Baltimore. It starts with this 1911 segregation ordinance that was ruled unconstitutional, but uh, it basically set the city's template for who's going to live where for the entire century and beyond that. Uh, you get to meet modern-day characters, real-life characters, uh, such as like city exterminator Harold Edmund, who's after the rats. Uh, you, you get this bizarre, twisted little bit of World War II-era history where you have a Johns Hopkins scientist discovering a new rat poison with City and Rockefeller backing, and he's trying it out on mostly black neighborhoods with zero concern for the health thing. It, it's, it's a fascinating and really, really uh, bracing mixture of styles and you're getting the history of the city's blight paralleling that of the Norway rats adaptability and proliferation. Now I live off an alley with a hell of a lot of Norway rats in it. And uh, why are they called Norway anyway? Great question. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. But it sounds like I, slander to me. Yeah, so it, it's a personal pick for me. You Josh know, we, is taking we, it personally. His we, ancestry. We we live near the rats. So, you know, there's, there's that and I, I I even sort of I acknowledge that I saw probably more flawless and in many ways um, more accomplished documentaries. Like I love Faces Places and I love I Am Not Your Negro, uh, you know, to, to name two that made my runner-up list, but not quite the top ten. But Rat Film really asserts the form, the documentary form, as kind of a form for experimentation and just sort of taking one idea and and seeing what you can tease out of it. I, I, yeah. I really love the film. And, and if you haven't seen it, please, you can find Rad Film. You can stream it. It's worth. It's really worth your 83 lousy stinking minutes. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I watched it specifically thinking about it as a potential golden brick contender and just never got around on the show to nominating it. But, Michael, experimental is the word. I thought I would be intrigued by it just based on that description, looking at race relations in Baltimore through the the trail of these rats and the history of these rats. But it's it's so much more out there than that. It's full of these little interludes, all these segments. Sometimes we follow a group of guys as they just go to their neighborhood and try to kill some of They're the rats. They're basically doing wilding We get on these, rats. these yeah. scientific experiments <laughs> and these recalls of past experiments. It's it's out there in a very good way, and I'm with you. I recommend it as well. Tasha, you're up next. I mean, how how can I possibly compete with rats? <laughs> I've heard nothing but good things about that film, and it, it just seems like one of those things that you would never find if not for the, the strident advocacy of people who've seen it and, and tell you that it's something you can't believe how good it is. My uh, number seven pick, I think, is probably going to have a little easier time finding its audience. It's called Mary and the Witch's Flower, and it's the first film from Studio Panak, which is the successor somewhat to Studio Ghibli. 
Ghibli, uh, Japan's famed studio that produced films like Spirited Away and My Neighbor Tortoro and Grave of the Fireflies, your favorite, Adam. <laughs> it and, is. Uh, a, a bunch of other just really exquisite, uh, extraordinary films. Uh, with the the slow aging and retirement of its two founders, so Takahata and Hayao Miyazaki, the Studio Ghibli moved away from production, and the idea was that it was it was no longer going to produce new films. So a bunch of the animators and producers formed a new studio, and Mary and the Witch's Flower is kind of their uh, their maiden voyage, their their launch into whether this is something they can do. And Studio Ghibli's magic is just so specific; it produces anime like no no other studio out there with just this this amazing blend of beautiful, phenomenally detail-oriented cell animation and these stories that are all about heart and energy that are mostly in some fashion or another kind of fables, some of them very high fantasy, some of them very low fantasy. Mary and the Witch's Flower could be a Studio Ghibli project. It's, it's that close and it's an amazing thing. It's almost as though when Stanley Kubrick died, somewhere in the back of your head, you're thinking there's never going to be another Stanley Kubrick. It's as though somebody came along and produced a perfect Stanley Kubrick movie. And the sensation of realizing that something you love has continuity, that it isn't dead, that it's going to be a, an ongoing thing is part of the, the spectacular feeling I had watching this film. Mm-hmm. It's based on a Mary Stewart fantasy novel. It's about a young girl who encounters a magical flower that gives her magical powers and that opens up for her a world of magical witches and warlocks that she suddenly gains access to even though she's not really part of them. Maybe the slightest hint of Harry Potter to the entire narrative. But in the manner of a Studio Ghibli movie, it's really all about that magical, expansive energy and creativity and the the personal energy of a young girl discovering the world entirely through her own spunk and bravery and courage. Hmm. It's a movie that I wasn't familiar with at all, Tasha. I Mm -hmm. have to confess until I saw your list. My notes in front of me tell me that it's a movie that's going to premiere nationwide January 18th. There's going to be a special screening of this. Yeah, I actually encountered it at Fantastic Fest in Austin. And it being uh, distributed in the U.S. by G Kids, uh, it'll have some sort of qualification, Oscar qualification screening in New York and L.A. before uh, the the holiday break. Um, but it will be opening wide in January for for people to see in general. Okay, all right. I've got more fantasy with my next outlier, which falls at number six on my list. It's The Shape of Water. And Michael, you know of my deep affection for 1954's Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yes. Remember when we did our top five movie manos? Yes. How could you forget? <laughs> Adam still hasn't turned his in because he missed that show. So Really? I know. I'm waiting for that. As far as I'm concerned, that show doesn't exist. It's been deleted from the Film Spotting Archive. <laughs> oh. I haven't heard that one. I'm assuming that you love Creature from the Black Lagoon because you're very, very attracted to the Creature from the Black Lagoon. And that's why Shape of Water Hit is us, such a big for you. Admit it. It is one of the most fantastic creature designs in movie history, I'll say, in The Creature from Black Lagoon. And I, I think that no, is Tasha. what Del Toro is riffing on here. And the costume design that they manage in this movie is just so ickly exquisite, uh, so rife with detail and details that you can touch, you feel that you can touch. Uh, it's not CGI at all. I'm sure there are maybe a few things here that I didn't notice. But yeah, Del Toro takes with this story, um, you know, there there was one undercurrent. It's 
there's a lot of silliness going on in the 54 film, but there is an undercurrent of longing that every once in a while kind of ripples to the surface. And that's what Del Toro puts at the forefront here by making The Shape of Water uh, this romance between a mute cleaning woman played by Sally Hawkins and an amphibian man played by Doug Jones. Uh, So on top of how this all surprisingly works is the fact and really tied into this that the movie has a lot of sharp political implications for uh, an era that's decidedly short on empathy. So I'm only on one viewing of The Shape of Water, so I don't want to quite say that I enjoy it even better than what is considered Del Toro's best film, Pan's Labyrinth. Mm, But mm, mm. I I do think it's doing some similar things in similar ways and is, is certainly at that level. Yeah, this was a tough one for me to leave off and at various points was in my top 10 right now just outside. Let's get to my next outlier and I've got a little bit of help. We're featuring a lot of special guests, people who are filmmakers, people who are critics. You know, let's get some more listener voices in here and Jeff Milo is a guy who regular listeners probably recognize his name because he was such a regular contributor to the show this year. Great stuff, especially during our top five lists and we want to get his pick for number one film of the year. Adam and Josh, it's Jeff Milo in Ferndale, Michigan. I just want to fill in the blank, as it were, uh, this week and just make sure that a proper amount of love winds up going in the direction of uh, Kumail Nanjiani's uh, The Big Sick. I've never seen two more believable parents portrayed on screen, um, and uh, Kumail's really got some powerful and emotional moments, and the dialogue is possibly the most like real and sincere that, that I've heard in, in any movie uh, that I saw this year, and I suspect um, uh, Michael Showalter directing it really kind of let it open for some, some improvisation uh, for some takes, and that shows. But yeah, in terms of graceful sort of uh, roller coaster of several emotions uh, and a portrayal of the, the human experience and families, love, and emergencies, I really want to say I fell in love with it even more after I, I watched it a second time. So... Big sick. Great show, guys. It's hard when you're making these lists to articulate and express with a lot of force what's so good about a movie that's just really well-crafted entertainment. Hmm. And that's what this movie is for me. I think Kenny Meyer in our poll feedback said it very well when he said, if I'm going for what made me laugh and cry the most and recommend the most, it's the big sick. Like the Safdie brothers, Kumail Nanjiani was another interview guest on the show this year. This is the movie he co-wrote with his wife, Emily V. Gordon, played wonderfully by Zoe Kazan. Great female character on this list, another curious, compassionate woman. I think that applies as well to Holly Hunter as her mother and Ray Romano as the father. I'm with Jeff there completely on the great performances from them as the parents. And it's just one of the best romantic comedies I've seen in recent memory. It's genuinely romantic and it's genuinely comedic. It's also, we talked about this a little bit with Kumail, one of the best movies about comedy itself, about the business of comedy, where we actually get real comedians delivering real stand-up, and they're actually being funny, which we don't always get that. We have audiences who seem to be genuinely reacting to the humor, not in a staged way at all. And the thing that really struck me, too, also discussed with Kumail, is that more than just being funny and heartfelt and moving, and it's all of those things, it does seem to be personal in a way that goes beyond just the autobiography of it. Kumail's character really has to confront his inability to be honest with himself, with Emily, with his family. And we do see multiple men, Ray Romano included in this film, who all want to do the right thing generally and are trying and they're not bad people, but they also have to come to terms with kind of fully accepting the responsibility 
of their actions and their decisions. And that's something that really did stand out to me with The Big Sick that raised it maybe just above that level of just being a funny and romantic and moving movie, but it's all of those things in spades. Yeah, I'm crazy about it. I mean, I've seen it, happily seen it twice. I think, uh, I think... The second time, it, did, it really occurred to me that I've never seen a more easygoing and relaxed central performance in a movie starring and showcasing a guy trained in comedy. Usually they're much more high pressure and kind of more contrived and just sort of slam bam. And I love movies like Trainwreck and some others, but, you know, uh, Nanjani's personality is just sort of perfect for this mixture of tones where you have this bizarre fact-based situation where it's a romantic comedy where the where one half of the couple is in a coma most of the picture mm-hmm. and then, and how do you get a how do you get a movie out of that well you follow you follow what happened in life partly and you make sure the inventions are up to uh, the play of that situation, honestly, for the right kind of laughs at the right time. It's a really good film. Yeah. I, I want to call it an anti-romantic comedy because okay. it, it's just – it feels to me like the romance never ma- really makes it onto the screen. It's it's kind of implied by their story, but you get so much more of the, the tension between them. And it feels like such a daring movie for that in, mm. in exploring yeah. all of the barricades in their way, all of the feelings that he feels that she doesn't reciprocate and vice versa, and then get Getting into all of those details with his family in particular and with just his experience as a man of color in America mm-hmm. at, at this period in time, I, it's just – it's exceptionally brave about confronting – a, a number of different things kind of about his experience as the child of immigrants and is dealing with some very, very traditional family issues. Mm-hmm. But it it approaches them all with a, a lightness that makes them accessible and in a way – Almost safe, but not so safe that you feel comfortable. It's got that kind of edge of yeah. discomfort comedy without that heavy feeling of, of awkwardness and squirminess that, that gets into so much kind of personal comedy. Now, all it's those, really light. All those descriptions really could apply to another film I like for, for similar reasons, Lady Bird. Oh, sure. You know what I mean? I mean, that's, uh, that's got – it's a uh, – you know, uh, I've said it before on the show, but Joel Cohen says, you know, there's two words about direction, only two words. It's tone management. And somehow they got that right with Big Sick and, mm. and with Lady Bird. Yeah. yeah, I think that's an astute point. It is almost an anti-romantic comedy. And saying that it's really romantic on my part almost makes you think it's one of those mushy romantic films. But I think the daringness and the fact that it doesn't put that at the forefront it makes it more real. It makes their relationship seem more real, which to me makes it more romantic that you actually get that real connection between the two. We now have our last four outliers to share. And Michael, you had so many just obvious, boring choices. What? I guess you get to you get to kind of sit out. <laughs> I'm not going to stick around. After you don't that. have another outlier. You just get to be the peanut gallery. <laughs> I can't talk about Raw, the French film, which is my hey, other. What am I later? Top, what am I oh, later? Later. Later. Okay. Save it. All right, We're going to save. Raw, spoiler alert, we're going to get to some more outlier choices now. Tasha, you're up with your number five film, and you've got some support from Dave Chen. Hey, Film Spotting. This is David Chen from the Slash Filmcast. While my favorite film of 2017 is still kind of shifting around a bit, it's looking like it's going to be I, Tanya. Craig Gillespie's film about one of the most notorious people in figure skating history manages to be many things at once, a humanizing portrait of an unlikely subject, a nuanced examination of domestic violence, and a thrilling sports movie with impressive, mostly convincing skating sequences. This movie is hilarious, heartbreaking, and anchored by a set of spectacular performances. I loved it, and I hope people will give it a chance. That's I, Tanya. Keep up the great work. 
Well, it's always a pleasure to hear from David and Slash Film Podcast. And it's always a pleasure to hear him be so very, very right. Because <laughs> this film, I I had to be persuaded to see it. I, I almost had to be dragged kicking and screaming to see it because I was not convinced by the idea of a film trying to reclaim the reputation of Tanya Harding. But this film took me to the same kind of place as movies like The Informant or The Big Short, films that are irreverent about history and that openly bring the audience in on a sort of conspiracy with the filmmaking story mm-hmm. by acknowledging them overtly through little meta comments uh, directly to the screen, but also by openly acknowledging that this film was constructed from interviews with the people involved, that their stories conflict with each other, that they can't be reconciled, and that necessarily this is a very subjective story. So by allowing you to understand that this movie is not necessarily trying to exactly produce real life or get at the truth so much as getting at a series of truths, it allows you to explore this narrative without the voice that's always going on in the back of my mind with a based on a real life story, which is did this happen? This probably didn't happen. Right. Instead, you're allowed to embrace this as a really nuanced and sensitive and emotional portrait, but also as entertainment, as a narrative that takes the shape of narrative that's specifically meant to replace another false narrative uh, that was apparently promulgated by the news at the time during the, the rise of the 24-hour news cycle. The movie has a lot to say in criticism of America's classism in consideration of the way the news processes stories, churns them up and spits them out in little packages. But it, it's also just a really funny movie and a really tragic and sad movie at the same time. Yeah, it really is. I think it's just outside my top 20, but I'm a fan of the film. I love Margot Robbie's performance as Harding. She really manages to make her a flesh and blood human being, which I wasn't expecting. Frankly, with all of her flaws and her will to overcome her circumstances and her self-awareness. She does seem fully self-aware, and at the same time, she has these major blind spots, and Robbie doesn't hide those. David mentioned the skating scenes, and they really are remarkable. And Craig Gillespie did a really smart thing, I think, in using that slow-motion technique where he emphasizes the triple axle, which is her signature move, by breaking that down, by not making it just this, this minor detail that we sort of take for granted she's doing, but showing us the skill involved, just how hard it is, what separates her from every other skater, what probably causes a lot of jealousy from those other skaters, what gives her her self-confidence. We have to understand what that move actually is and what it entails and just how hard it is. So I really like that. I do think the part where it just overstepped a little bit for me is Gillespie doesn't quite trust us to indict ourselves in the way we were complicit in judging and taunting Tanya Harding and turning her into this character that she became. I think we probably all could have recognized our complicity a little bit watching the movie and our exploitation of Tanya. And at one point, he has to just he has to come out and have a character say it in a way that didn't actually feel completely honest to me. I mean, the, the debate on that film is pretty interesting. It's just it's just starting now because the movie's just opening commercially mm-hmm. in Chicago and other markets uh, now after after the festival circuit this fall. But you know, is the film hypocritical in the way? It gets its laughs and then sort of smacks you upside the head and, sa- and says, "Don't laugh. It's yeah. not funny." And and that's I like the film, but I I I had that question. And when you mentioned the Big Short, Tasha, I do think absolutely it lives in that same sort of realm of dark comedy. That's you know trying to it's it's not frivolous, but the tone is deceptively. What? Exuberant? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little moralizing. But yeah. given some of the clips we see at the very end of the movie comparing 
the shots that we see during the movie of the characters portraying uh, these these people being interviewed and the clips we see of the actual interviews, I would not be remotely surprised if that was something that Tanya Harding actually said during the interviews. And I, I took it as that, as not Gillespie putting a, a gloss over the film, but as her herself saying, the world did this to me and it's not fair. We get a lot of Harding's very specific voice in this film. And that's we one do. of the things that makes we do. it fascinating. And that, that one just seemed off to me, but you're right. It very well could have been something as I said, she seems to be a very self-aware character and person in real life, so it's entirely possible. America, they want someone to love, but they want someone to hate. I mean, come on! What kind of friggin' person bashes in their friend's knee? Who would do that to a friend? All right, Tasha, you had I, Tanya at number five. In the number five slot on my list, I have The Beguiled. And people like to reference Muslin when talking about Sofia Coppola's films. I think The Fabric has somehow come to represent her her filmmaking <laughs> style. I think you can also say that The Beguiled is possibly the Musliniest of Sofia Coppola's <laughs> pictures. If I had a dollar for every time I'd said that. <laughs> Not sure that's a word, but... It applies here. This movie does so much of its entrancing work through fabric. And a lot of that is obviously the costume design, but even the actions you see, the sewing that uh, the women in this film are involved in. And it does tell the story of a group of teachers and students at an 1864 Virginia boarding school who take in this wounded Union soldier. And so he's, he's sort of like their patient and their prisoner, played by Colin Farrell in a great performance. Uh, he's... He's a sly fox whose whose tail gets caught in this mother bear's trap, and watching him squirm is one of the delights of the movie. Uh, I mentioned the stitching of dresses. I love how this gives way to the stitching of wounds, and Coppola brings us into psychological horror, and, and we realize we've been there the whole time, and then it starts to get explicit. Uh, this is just a fascinating exploration of feminine desire, a common theme in Coppola's films, but here in in its startling complexity in a way that I think her other movies might not have done. Well, in all my travels, I've never come across such a delicate beauty as yours. Tell me something, will you? Miss Morrow. It's okay. If you could have anything. What's your biggest wish? If you could have anything in the world, what would it be? Anything. Yeah, anything. To be taken far away from me. Uh, putting different faces on that desire is an extraordinary cast. We've got Kirsten Dunst. We've got Elle Fanning, Nicole Kidman. I think, you know, as scary as anything in Get Out is when Kidman says, bring me the anatomy book. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to hear that. I think the beguiled has been... I, I can't think of a single context where I did want to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Even in school, you don't want to hear that. I think the beguiled has been forgotten. Um, and I don't know, maybe people consider it too wispy or, you know, another inconsequential Coppola film. But for me, it's one of her best and one of the year's best. Yeah, I just finally saw it. I missed that review the week it came up on the show. And in terms of my curiosity, compassion thesis, this is like ground zero for that with women, right? Because it either proves the theory or completely destroys it. You've got this <laughs> house full of women and their sense of curiosity and compassion both drives them down that very dark path. And I like that you call Colin Farrell the sly fox and the mother bear's trap. I think Coppola does just the just the perfect job of insinuating those elements without indicating to us 
how we should exactly feel about it. They all make terrible decisions and do terrible things to each other, but they all sort of have their reasons at all yeah, emerges no organically. Really. No, there really isn't. It's not as if oh, you wait, immediately assume. I don't think so. Oh, I think we read that very differently. Okay. I think that if this had ended up on your list, Adam, mm. it would have thrown them all into question because they do all have a very strong sense of curiosity and compassion. Yeah. But by the end, they've all got a dearth of it in a way that becomes very dangerous and, and takes the film even I agree. deeper into that horror territory. No, I, yeah, I completely agree. I think as we get there, though, you can see why they're making some of the decisions they're making, even if by the end we don't completely approve of the path they choose. I so think it's we can movie. make our choices about their actions. Absolutely. The, the movie leaves room for that. But the film itself has this sort of uh, sense of remove that's that's uh, makes it all the more disturbing for me. Certainly. Well, there's a dangerousness to the entire yeah, that's thing. True. There's just there's a sense of, of threat that comes from both sides of the equation in mm-hmm. that movie that's balanced very well. Up until the last act, for me, if if the final, it, not even the, the third act, but if sort of the final sequence where that movie goes had had the impact of the, the first two acts, this probably would have been a top five for me. I feel like the film just, it, it came to a crisis point and then it just sort of peters out after that. I think you're right. I think the performances are amazing. I think the cinematography is stunning. It's a beautiful film. And it, it came with a sense of threat that for me, probably only get out rivaled this year but it was such a disappointment for me in the end so don't don't go to southern estates is the lesson that we're learning from (laughs) (laughs) don't be a guest we can learn a lot from that movie yeah we really can okay my last outlier and my number five film of the year is a movie made by maybe the most curious and compassionate woman in the history of cinema not only woman, compassionate and curious character in the history of cinema, that's Agnes Varda. I think you could easily make the case for her. She's someone behind the camera who exudes that sensibility, but also often in her films in front of it. And that's the case with Faces Places. She co-directed the movie with the photographer and muralist J.R., much younger. Varda's 89. He's 33. And it's essentially a road movie where they go town to town in these beautiful French villages and meet people hear their stories, and produce these gigantic portraits of them wherever they may end up. It might be on cargo containers, or it might be on the side of a building, or a barn. And I just think, for me, Varda's enthusiasm, her empathy, they're contagious. I just couldn't help but be swept up in her energy and her giddiness at these encounters, and her sense of discovery, really, that that passes on to us as viewers. And she's really giving people who don't usually have a platform to tell their stories or maybe aren't even aware that their stories are worth telling that outlet. And they are, as you would expect, empowered as a result. They end up seeing themselves differently through this process. And I think that that, that new way of seeing is kind of that sub-theme I mentioned I'm going to get to in part two. But there's just always an exchange between the artist and the subject here. We talked about a little bit with I, Tanya, this sense of exploitation, whether or not it's there with these real people. You never get that sense with Varda and her movies. She is someone who truly wants to see these people, and then they get something out of that as well in the process, that discovery of themselves. So just for me, consistently surprising and exhilarating 
as a piece of cinema. I loved Faces Places. It's great. I, I, I mean, that's the one of all the ones that didn't quite make the top ten. It's the one I'll probably regret next month. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love it. And I love I love that almost every reaction you see in the film where where the, 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 the different uh, villagers, all ages, you know, see their – see the end result um, – uh, their face or, or a relative of theirs based on an old photograph suddenly five stories high in a building. They, nobody ever has like a purely simple reaction to it. I mean, you see tears and laughter and yeah. puzzlement and wonder and be, you know, bewilderment and appreciation all in one. And, and that's kind of how I watch the movie. Yeah, the mining village in particular. We talked yes. about it during yeah. our review when this woman who is the only woman left in this house and on the street and she finally comes out and sees herself projected onto her building that that hit me as hard as any moment this year and it's funny as we talk about that and emotion in general i don't really know i'll just be honest as i was making my picks i kind of avoided talking about this too much because i don't know as a critic how i'm supposed to talk about it it's really easy to say a movie made me emotional or a movie made me cry is that always a good thing obviously sometimes that that isn't the test of a good movie. There are films that can be quite manipulative and still get a tear out of you. But I just want to point out that that moment with the woman in the mining community, the end of Wonderstruck, scenes near the end of The Big Sick, as I look at my list, I'd say at least six or seven of my choices are films that did give me that most emotional reaction to them. Well, I think a lot of times it's it has to do with how it gets that reaction, yes. right? And, and if you can see that you're being manipulated in a way that's easy or false or not in tune with what the rest of the movie is doing. And it, it's a question you can ask of the art that yeah. Varda and JR are producing. Are they doing that looking to make someone cry? No, you get the sense that's it. they're doing it because they don't know what the reaction yeah. will be. They, they just want to it. bring this into the community that they're visiting, offering it up, and then allow people to respond as they will. Yeah, I think that's it. I think it's the difference between obviously manipulation and it feeling either earned or completely a surprise, which yes. is the case in Faces Places. In faces, it's places, never, it's it's never something they're trying as, to mind. As Michael it was just, saying, yeah. it just happens. Then I wonder if there are some of those moments for you as well, Tasha, in your final outlier, the movie that is your number four film of the year, and a movie that was a Golden Brick candidate for us, nominated earlier in the year. Uh, not just in my my number four pick, but I think in general, if if there is a theme to my list this year, it is probably the theme that is in my list every year, which is movies that surprised me and that made me feel a strong emotion without making me feel manipulated into it. Films that are constructed around a natural but intense sort of feeling, but that come to it from a, a strange sort of left field place. So my number four pick, Brigsby Bear, a film I originally saw at Sundance came to me in that in that exact sort of left field way. It is a film, I, I don't want to say too much about the, the plot because it is a film built expressly on surprises. But uh, Kyle Mooney from Saturday Night Live uh, stars in it and it was directed by Dave, Dave McCary. It's uh, his first film. Uh, the two of them are partners together on Saturday Night Live. Dave McCary is a writer and director. Uh, Kyle Mooney is a writer and an actor. And I guess I what I can say is that it's about a man who is obsessed with a very strange and obscure television show and finds ways to replace it in his life when it disappears by recreating it with the help of his community. So it comes to a place that's very similar to Be Kind, Rewind on an emotional level. But I was just going to say it's Be Kind, Rewind meets Room. Oh, it really kind of is <laughs> yeah. in, a, in a number and of And somehow ways. it works. But I, I suppose – 
room at times felt very calculated to me, very emotionally manipulative, very much trying to put the viewers through their paces. Brigsby Bear comes at some of the same ideas from a place that just seems so natural and so authentic and so dialed down in tone. It actually reminded me a great deal of Lars and the Real Girl and that sensation of an entire community coming together to kind of enfold somebody with a series of problems that need resolution and in the process creating something out of it in a a really natural and kind of low-key magical sort of way. It is a film of of endless surprises just in terms of the form of the humor, but also in terms of all of the pitfalls it avoids. Just again, without giving anything away, the storyline could so easily go in a twee direction or an overly quirky Mm -hmm. or calculated direction in an overstated garish comedic direction. And it's just – it's a very careful, very smart movie. And just sort of the naturalistic humor and the naturalistic performances that come out of it, I think, were one of the most surprising things I saw this year in film. Yeah, it's a surprising movie. And you know who gives Josh a very good performance? Let's hear it. Mark Hamill. Mark Hamill. Oh, does Mark he? Mark Hamill. Very, very good. He's still bear. Is he on for approximately 65% of the... He's not. Oh, your math well, is they, off. they went right. Your math is way off. Okay. That is part one of our top 10 films of 2017 countdown, our outliers. And we are going to quickly recap those choices. We know we danced around a lot, but just know... You don't really have to pay attention. Just go to filmspotting.net slash lists or click on lists over at our website and you can see these choices and where we have them ranked. But, Michael, just for fun, let's hear the choices that we shared during the show. Amongst my actual top ten, we talked about my number ten, Call Me By Your Name, my number seven, Good Time, and my number five, Rat Film. Tasha? Oh, we talked about my number ten, Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman. My number eight, The Breadwinner. My number seven, Mary and the Witch's Flower. My number five, I, Tanya, And my number four, Brigsby Bear. And I've got half of my list covered already. At number nine, I have Your Name. Blade Runner 2049 came in at eight. The Breadwinner is in the seven slot. Then I have The Shape of Water at six and The Beguiled at five. For me at number 10, Personal Shopper. Number nine, Wonderstruck. Number eight, The Big Sick and Faces, Places in the Five Slot. We will get to part two next week. We'll go from our outlier picks to what we're calling for now our consensus picks for the best films of the year. In most cases, that means more than one of us had the film in our top 10. In other cases, just one of us have the film in our top 10 and maybe other members of the roundtable even hate it. That's going to happen, but it's a film that generated a lot of conversation during the year, feels appropriate for a big end-of-year show. We still want to hear your picks for the best of 2017 as well, so send those along with any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. Adam is at filmspotting. I'm at Larson on film. At filmspotting.net, you can find 12 plus years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. If you haven't already, check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts, The Next Picture Show, featuring the great Tasha Robinson and Film Spotting SVU. You can find both in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app. Also at filmspotting.net, all new Film Spotting merch. More info at filmspotting.net slash shop. And Michael, we don't have you on a podcast yet, except your guest appearance is here, but where can people find more of your work? For the actual print work, the word work, it's chicagotribune.com slash movies. I'm also hanging around the website at WFMT, where I've got my most recent hour-long program devoted to movie music, the film score, music for the winter holiday. Hmm. <laughs> you can also be found on Twitter at Phillips Tribune. Tasha, where can people find more of your work 
other than The Next Picture Show. Oh, you can find me at TheVerge.com, where I'm the film and TV editor, and you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Okay. Thank you both. I hope you'll stick around. Thanks, Otherwise, guys. our roundtable is, <laughs> well, it's not going to be a roundtable. we got to do it now. It, it'll yeah. be triangular if one of us leaves. <laughs> <laughs> Out in wide release this weekend, downsizing the new film from Alexander Payne. And I've heard nothing but kind of lukewarm to bad things about this movie. And Sean Baker, who we just might hear from in part two, the director of The Florida Project, According to his letterbox feed, really big fan of this film. So maybe don't be so hard on Alexander Payne's downsizing. Father Figures, a road trip comedy with Owen Wilson, Ed Helms, Christopher Walken, Glenn Close, and others. The Greatest Showman. This is, is this the movie everyone on Twitter is calling Circus Musical? Yes. Because that that confused me for days. I didn't know what they were talking about. And here's the other thing. Here's the other thing. I swear to you, I have seen the trailer for this movie 57 times. (laughs) Until Sam said it a few days ago. Had no idea it was a musical. It's got so they're not, in they're it. not leading with I the music. I'm pretty sure that at this point, anything with Hugh Jackman, it is legally obligated to be a musical, which means we all need to go back and revisit Logan. Maybe. Probably just maybe. I'm just movie. telling you, I don't remember a single moment of singing in the trailer. So who knows? He's playing P.T. Barnum there, Michelle Williams, Zac Efron, and others. Co-star Jumanji is out with The Rock, Kevin Hart, and Jack Black, and oh my, I cannot wait Pitch Perfect 3. If I had seen it before, if there had been a screening, maybe it'd be in my top 10. But I couldn't make it. So we're going to have to wait, and I'm going to have to see it in theaters. I'm going to see it with the fans, not critics, the way it's meant to be seen. You can retroactively include it in your top 10. Real people. The real people. Yes, That's real it. people. On Christmas Day, Ridley Scott's All the Money in the World comes out in limited release. Opening in Chicago this weekend, we've got Steven Spielberg's The Post and Aaron Sorkin's Molly's Game. That comes out Christmas Day. For me, I'm... More pro Molly's game than the post. Am I in the minority on that? Haven't seen Molly's game. Yeah, I, I am haven't pro the it. post though. You haven't seen we Molly's might game have yet. Have to do a review on this. Maybe, maybe. I definitely recommend Molly's game and sort of lightly recommend the post. Yikes! Yeah. Well, you're never you've never been much of a First Amendment guy. Right? No, yeah. <laughs> that Poor explains it. Never really enjoyed the press. <laughs> Film spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show would not go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you liked what you heard, please give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That will help us reach new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.